I remember that in my first election, one candidate made a special appeal to the women. His baby son was paraded in a perambulator with a large placard, Vote for Daddy. <laughs> That's good. I wonder if they do that today. Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Welcome, this is Tick Tick, Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Saturday the 29th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Tēnā koutou katoa. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about the election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. There are 49 days until the election. So at the top of the show, you heard Nataonga Sound and Vision's recording of a voter of 1893, Nellie Perryman. That was the first election in which women could cast their vote. And a lot has changed since then, right? But a lot about our modern elections remains the same. That's true. But this year, a few things are a bit different because of the coronavirus pandemic. For starters, polling day has been pushed back from September 19 to October 17. And New Zealand is ready for voting to go ahead at level two, which means social distancing and other new protocols at the polling places. Anyway, we wanted to check in with the Electoral Commission to see how all that was going to work. Because it's us, we couldn't help but look for some of the weird and wonderful things about voting and our election history. Suffice to say, dear Mrs Perryman told us a few things we hadn't heard before, and we discovered a few other things that surprised us. Yeah, quite a few I did not know that moments. That's all later in the show. So first, Eugene, what's been happening? Auckland has got a bit of a, look, just make sure you behave yourself, message from the Finance Minister Grant Robertson at the one o'clock press conference yesterday. So the super city is due to move from alert level 3 to alert level 2 at 11.59 on Sunday. Yay. And Robertson reminded people that this was level 2, but not as they knew it. Gatherings are mostly restricted to 10 this time around, and there are new rules around masks on public transport and planes, so a bit different. Of course, last time we went from level 3 to level 2, there were no cases being reported at the time. But this time, we're still seeing some cases. Yesterday, there were 12, seven arrivals all on the same flight and five cases in the community. Four of those five were connected to the Mount Roskill Church, which is sort of being described as a mini cluster within the overall Auckland cluster that sent the region back into lockdown on August 12. The big story of the week, of course, was the sentencing of the Christchurch terrorist sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder of 51 worshippers at two mosques on March 15 last year. The week really belonged to his victims, whose powerful and emotional statements to the judge, and sometimes directly to the killer himself, resonated way beyond the courthouse and drowned out his message of hate. But in the aftermath, there was a little bit of political back and forth. New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters called for the killer to be sent back to his homeland, Australia, to serve his sentence there. That didn't draw much political support here, but Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison did tell Australian media yesterday that he was willing to at least discuss the possibility. Greens co-leader James Shaw, he's having to front up to party members to explain the $11.7 million funding of a private school in Taranaki. The Green School, which promotes environmentally friendly ideals, funny that given the name, charges students $20,000 a year to attend. Now, the Greens have a policy of phasing out public funding for private schools. So there was a bit of, uh, what going on within the party when Shaw, with his associate finance minister hat on, announced the decision this week. It did come from the government's $3 billion so-called shovel-ready project fund, rather than the education budget. But still, some party members were not happy. Not exactly something you want seven weeks out from an election. 
So, Adam, remember I was going to check in with the Electoral Commission about Orange Guy? Oh uh, yeah, since you'd failed so miserably in managing to track him down. Harsh, but probably fair. So what did they say? I'm guessing, seeing you haven't mentioned this till now, that we're not going to get to interview him, are we? Correct. Sorry. But the Electoral Commission was super nice about it, and so was Orange Guy. Here's what the email said. We've asked Orange Guy if he's available, but unfortunately he's got a tight schedule with all these ads he's recording about enrolling and voting. Orange Guy asked us to pass on a polite decline. He is super polite. He says he'll be popping up over the next few weeks, letting people know that they need to be enrolled to take part in the election and referendums. Oh, well. Dreams dashed. It's a pity, because I really was hoping to find out a bit more about him and his new dog. Well, funny you should say that, because the commission did pass this on too. Orange Guy is busy right now, but in between elections he likes to relax and blob out, literally. He says having Pup will keep him in shape and busy, and that Pup is loving the attention, as dogs do. Nice. Okay. Well, we better put this behind us then, just as well, because we've got a busy show already. Yeah. So we decided it was time to see what we could find out about the machinery of our elections, who votes and who doesn't. And how much disruption is the coronavirus pandemic having on election preparations? And we start by taking a trip back in time. I voted in the parliamentary election of 1893 when women first had that privilege, that right. And I am voting in this general election too. That's the voice of proud voter Nellie Perryman. We're going to hear a bit more from Mrs Perryman later on, but when she voted that first time in 1893, she was a school teacher in Petoni. And that recording from Nataonga Sound and Vision is from 1943, when she was in her late 70s. So when she talks about voting, in this general election, she'd have meant the one in September that year for New Zealand's 27th Parliament. Right, so fast forward 77 years, it's 2020, and as we heard at the top of the show, there are 49 days until the election. And then we'll be on to New Zealand's 53rd Parliament. But whether you're talking about 1893 or 1943 or 2020, the gist of how an election works is sort of much the same. You make your mark on a piece of paper, put it in a box, then wait for someone to count them all up and inform the nation about who's going to run the show for the next few years. Well, it's sort of the same, but kind of different too. All right, they didn't have COVID-19 QR codes at the polling booths back then. Also, nobody would have voted using a ballpoint pen because they weren't even invented until the 1930s. The things you learn. Anyway, for today's feature, we decided to go find out what goes on under the bonnet when New Zealand goes to the polls. And along the way, we take a virtual plane trip in search of New Zealand's most expensive voters. We take a brief tour deep into the jungles of India. And we ponder whether candidates might want to change their last name to Aardvark. And we had some burning questions. Like... Can I take my dog into the poll booth? Am I allowed to vote more than once? And what colour pens are legal to vote with? Sorry, what colour? Are there any particular colours that you're meant to vote with? Uh, We'd prefer not red. Our voting staff use red pens, so um, generally black or blue. This very patient chap is Graham Astle. National Manager of Voting Services at the Electoral Commission. And not all the questions we asked him were that inane, though 
honestly, I do care a lot about stationery, so this was kind of important to me. Graham's job, essentially, is to make sure the whole process runs smoothly. There are about 25,000 people involved in the build-up and on election day itself. There are about 9 million voting papers to prepare and print and distribute around the country, and almost 3 million people's votes to count at the end of it all. And then there are the papers for the two referendums. Referenda. It's a huge operation. But before you even get to election day, there's one really important step that comes before that. Okay, well, one of the first things that you need to do is to enrol. Mandy Bote. The Manager for Enrolment and Community Engagement at the Electoral Commission. Mandy is Graham's colleague, and her job is to help make sure that everyone who's eligible to vote gets their name on the electoral roll. Because if you're not on the roll, you can't vote. Though, fortunately... It's really quick and it's really easy to do that. You can go online at vote.nz or you can get a paper form sent to you. If you're going online, all you need is your passport and your driver's licence. Even though Mandy says it's easy to enrol, and it's compulsory by the way, not everyone does. At the last election, the final enrolment rate, that's the percentage of people who are eligible to vote who have actually registered, was 92.4%. Mandy says they're working hard to get the number as high as they can again this year. And they've got high-powered talent on the job, including our old, elusive friend... Your enrolment update pack? Orange Guy, who fronts all those TV ads. And poses for all those photo shoots with his dog. And it turns out there are other ads too. Young people in particular have a habit of ignoring elections, so Mandy says the Electoral Commission has been... Really trying to have a bit of fun with our advertising to engage our younger audience. You may have seen the vote ghost um, advertising. (laughs) Just to jump in, at this point, Adam and I are vigorously nodding our heads on the video call to indicate that we were indeed totally down with the kids and knew all about this vote ghost that Mandy was talking about. Or you may not have if if you're not the age group potentially. Busted. Neither of us had ever seen the vote ghost ad. We have now though. It goes like this. Half of young New Zealanders don't vote and Ted here is one of them. He's pretty much invisible, poor bloke. You're a vote ghost, aren't you Ted? But we can fix that. Uh, Vote. Don't be a vote ghost. Obviously you can't see this, seeing as it's a podcast, but if you found that a little confusing, it may help to know that in the video, Vote Ghost is basically a guy with a blanket over his head playing netball. I trust the advertising agency who came up with this knew what they were doing. But the question for me is, why? Why are young people so reluctant to get involved that someone had to invent a sports-loving vote ghost? I think young people really care about, um, you know, things that matter to them. I think often enrolment is just not top of mind for people. Actually, it's not just young people. Also, Māori, Pacifica, New New Zealanders, you know, they are probably the groups that are are less likely to enrol and vote. And so we provide community engagement teams to work with those particular areas. So we have around 200 people um, across the country on the ground. So, you know, we send texts out to people, letting them know that their addresses aren't up to date. We call people, we email people, we're going to schools, we're going to training organisations, really Really getting the message out. So if you could help us with that, that would be fantastic. All right. Here goes. Everyone, for pity's sake, go and enrol now. If you do it in good time, they'll send out something called an easy vote card, which makes the whole process easier on polling day. Get online, go to vote.nz. You'll know you've found the right page because Orange Guy's at the top waving hello. Actually, there's something I've always wanted to know about Orange Guy. Any idea why that colour was chosen? (laughs) 
Well, yeah, orange guy. I guess uh, looking for a very politically neutral colour is probably one of the, the main things there. And who doesn't love orange? Well, an important mystery resolved at last. You know, it's kind of interesting though, isn't it? All the efforts that a state-funded organisation like the Electoral Commission goes to to get everyone involved in the voting process. Because we've really not always been quite as inclusive. New Zealand has a really disgraceful history of anti-Chinese racism. It wasn't until after 1952 that Chinese New Zealanders could become naturalised citizens, which means before then they generally weren't allowed to vote or take part in politics. 1952. Unbelievable. Things are somewhat better these days. Election materials are supplied in... 24 different languages. If someone has impaired vision, they can take someone in to help them vote. Or, Graham Astle explained, they can vote by phone. What they do is... Ring up and identify themselves and receive a unique identifier. Then they hang up and call back and talk to a different person. And vote anonymously. If someone doesn't speak English, and that means they struggle to vote, then they can bring an interpreter with them. It's much the same if you can't read. Mandy says, totally fine. To have somebody come along and help you, they just can't vote for you. You need to make your own choice on that. Not only that, if you're going to be busy on election day itself, you can make an advance vote. And on this occasion, we were starting two weeks before election day, and we'll have a range of voting places in every electorate up and down the country. And then there are what are called special votes, which cover a pretty wide range of situations, including being overseas or outside your regular electorate when it comes time to vote. If you are overseas, you can make your way to one of the voting posts that get set up all over the world, but... The main way, though, that we encourage people is if they've got access to a phone and a computer to um, download their voting papers if they're enrolled and then upload them back straight to our centralised service here in New Zealand. You do need to be enrolled before you can do that, but you can do that online too. So all up, it's easy peasy. What else? What if I'm in prison? Well... If your sentence is for less than three years, you're now able to vote and... We send in a small mobile team to those prisons and conduct the voting in those prisons in a restricted area. If you're going to be in hospital, you can do an advance vote or get a family member to bring voting papers to you. And at rest homes, returning officers work with managers to arrange voting services. There just aren't many good excuses for not voting. In fact, sometimes you end up with the opposite problem. The over-enthusiastic voter who does it more than once. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's illegal, Adam. Well, yes, but the way Graham Astle describes it, it sounds like it's something that really doesn't happen very often and isn't always even intentional. Sometimes it might be somebody um, votes in a rest home, for example, and they may forget that they've voted or their family member takes them out on election day and they have another vote and it's probably something that they're not aware of. At the last election, there were 37 cases of multiple voting referred to police. However, as a result of that, there was only one prosecution in Christchurch. So there are things like that that you can identify. But in terms of deliberate, fraudulent behaviour, it's not very high at all. There's one sort of infuriating thing. What's that? All those taxpayer dollars, all those people who work on election day to make it run smoothly, all those pleading messages from Mandy and her team. I'm going to put in another plug for making sure they are enrolled here because in order to download your voting papers, you do need to... Despite all of that, there are thousands and thousands of people who don't vote. 
Why not? Well, I mean, you can simply ask people, of course, why they didn't vote, and they will give you all kinds of responses. That's Dr Jack Fowles. Professor of Comparative Politics at Victoria University of Wellington. He studies things like voter registration and, that and voter turnout. Oh, I'd have to uh, go back and look at the, the numbers. but uh, So many numbers, so much data to understand who votes and why. Sometimes the answer is really quite mundane. About half the people who say they didn't vote said, oh, I didn't get around to it. You know, something else was going on that day. I was with a group of friends who had already voted and so, you know, I didn't manage to get to the polling place. Those sorts of quite random situations can make a difference. And weather as well? Uh, yes, there's some evidence that if it rains, uh, people are less likely to vote. Uh, there's been research which has, you know, used quite detailed geocoding to be able to demonstrate that effect. It's a relatively small one, but nevertheless, uh, it does tend to be real uh, in those countries where it's been studied. Even the bloody rain, huh? His research also identified all the factors Mandy talked about, ethnicity, age. But the really cool thing was Jack has been able to actually quantify some of the effects. He did some research on the 2017 election and he was able to show that across the electorates, for every year higher the median age, enrolment was also higher by about half a percentage point. So what does that mean? Jack explained that if you take two electorates, one with a median age of 40 and one with a median age of 50, all else being equal, you'd expect enrolments to be five percentage points higher in the electorate with the median age of 50 than the electorate with the median age of 40. Got it. And there was a similar impact around income. For each $10,000 higher the median household income by electorate, change in enrolment was up by about 1.3%. Huh. But actually, what does it matter if older and richer people vote more? Well, there's some evidence that uh, the fewer people who vote, then the more public policy tends to be biased towards the interests of those who do vote. So we can see this in most countries in that public policy, by and large, tends to be biased towards the interests of people who are older, whereas young people don't necessarily get their interests reflected as much as uh, perhaps they might be if more of them voted. And that sort of makes sense, right? So surely that's enough motivation to get people to vote. But as Jack points out, there are a bunch of philosophical and logistical reasons also why people don't vote. They can get disillusioned with the political process. They feel it doesn't affect them. Or perhaps you're a young person who has gone flatting, you haven't registered your new address, the Electoral Commission can't track you down, and the people you're living with aren't particularly interested in voting. So, you know, it just it just doesn't seem important. Yeah, and that whole social aspect is something Jack thinks really matters, something which perhaps is getting a bit lost as more people do advance voting. Election day becomes far less of a focus than it used to be. The campaigns are supposed to build up, if you like, to a crescendo, and then we all go out on election day and we vote, and we do it together with our neighbours uh, in the local polling place. Uh, we take our kids along so that we can show them that this is something that we do as citizens. And that aspect of voting is being lost. The day that Mrs Nellie Perriman went out to vote in 1893 was pretty social, maybe a little too social for her liking. Voting meant going to a public polling booth among a number of strange men. You know, conditions were very different for women in those Victorian days. They always had to have a male escort when they went out. And the idea of asking them to enter a polling booth on election day when things were rather lively, 
was so repellent to many people that an effort was made to introduce postal voting for women. That was not adopted. But you didn't hesitate, Mrs. Perriman, to go to the polling booth. Uh, well, it was a bit unpleasant going among a lot of strange men, but the conditions at Victoria, compared with some other places, were very decent. And once the women had succeeded in getting the vote, all candidates were anxious to have their support. I remember that in my first election, one candidate made a special appeal to the women. His baby son was paraded in a perambulator with a large placard, Vote for Daddy. <laughs> That's good. I wonder if they do that today. Hmm, don't know about 1943, but I get the feeling it wouldn't fly in 2020. Oh, I don't know. Neve holding up a placard saying, Vote for Mummy? <laughs> Maybe, but I think we're getting off the point here. Where I was thinking of going next is, what's it like when you head down to the voting booths these days, 127 years on? Forget about your overseas votes and your advance votes and your phone votes and your prison votes. What's it like to bowl up on October 17 for a bog standard on the day vote? What happens next? So when you arrive at the front door, you're going to be greeted by a voter assistant. They're going to encourage you to sanitise. Oh, that's right. This isn't exactly a bog standard election, is it? It's a pandemic election. And if you've got your easy vote card, they will point you in the right direction. You receive your voting papers. You were then directed behind a voting screen so you can cast your vote. Each voting paper will have the 18-odd, and some of them are very odd, parties running for office for you to choose from. And then in a separate column, there'll be the names of the local candidates, which will be for a general electorate or a Māori electorate, depending which electoral role you're on. Either way, the party list and the candidates list are each in alphabetical order. And you put a tick for your favourite party. And a tick for your favourite candidate. And another tick on each of the two referendum voting forms which are running in parallel with the general election. One about cannabis, one about euthanasia. You do all your ticks. And then you'll be able to drop those papers in the right ballot boxes before you leave the voting place and sanitise on the way out. When you come in, if you have a pen with you, we'll encourage you to use it. If you don't have a pen, we'll provide you one so that you can mark your papers and you can get to keep the pen. At last, an upside to COVID-19. Free pens. I had a few other important questions for Graham about what happens on election day. Can I take my dog with me into the voting booth? No. <laughs> Why not? It's likely to be disruptive, and in this environment, we're very careful about health and safety. So we would encourage you to tie it up outside or leave it in the care of somebody else. Though, of course, you are allowed to take a guide dog in. Next question. What about my child? Can I take my child into the booth with me? Yes. Can I do a selfie or a Facebook Live post as I vote? And if not, why not? No. And the reason why, we don't want any communication of how people have voted or inside a voting booth. Fair enough. Sanctity of the polling booth and all that. Anyway, so now you're done. You can untie your barking dog, walk away from the polling place with your head high, knowing you've done your democratic duty. From then on, your vote will sit securely in its sealed box until 7pm that evening, at which time an army of election staff around the country will count like stink, phone the results to a central hub, those figures are added to the counts for the advance votes, which will have been counted earlier that day, and then everything goes online, and hey presto, we have an election result. Well, unless the results change because of the special votes, that they, they keep on coming in for another 10 days after the election, or there could be a recount in an electorate where there's a close result. And there's also the two-week wait before the referendum results are counted. And there's the potentially endless process of coalition negotiations if there's no clear winner. 
Well, yes, apart from all that. But still, the election will mostly be over by late that evening. There was one other thing I really wanted to know, though. What happens to those millions of voting papers? Well, Graham said the papers all get bundled up and labelled and stored securely for six months, and then... At the end of that period, they then can be destroyed under supervision. Shredded. It's quite a long process because you can imagine there's a lot of paper. What happens to all that confetti? I think it's composted. Ah, the circle of life. Hey, just before we move on, I want to go back for a second, back to the voting booth. Okay. You've got your easy vote card. So, you know how you said the lists of your voting choices? Right, each in alphabetical order. Well, I was kind of wondering, is that possibly a bit unfair? You know, if candidate Aardvark gets an advantage over candidate Zachariah. And there has been some international research which suggests that people who are listed at the top of ballot papers do slightly better than those at the bottom. So I asked Jack Vowles, and he told me that an American political scientist actually looked at New Zealand city council elections in 1974, and they did find a, quote, small effect. For that reason, many local government elections randomise candidate names or even print different versions of the same form. But if you're worrying that Labour, which starts with the 12th letter of the alphabet, has an unfair advantage over national, 14th letter of the alphabet, or maybe you're worried that Vision New Zealand has made a terrible mistake with their party name, you can relax. Jack Fowles says, look, the alphabet effect is unlikely to make any difference in New Zealand's MMP elections, not least because the effect mostly kicks in for low information voting, which is the kind that happens in local body elections most often. Phew. Now, where were we? I think it's Ah, that's right. Now, seeing you were allowed a gratuitous digression to something just because you found it interesting, I'm going to do the same. Okay, what's on your mind? Shoot. Well, when I was thinking about all the work that the likes of Graham Astle and Mandy Bote and their cast of 25,000 do to make sure everyone in New Zealand gets a chance to vote, I couldn't help thinking of this guy I read a piece about years ago, which has always fascinated me. Hmm. So this guy's name was Bharatdas Dashandas, and he was a Hindu priest from India's Gujarat state who lived at Bangang Shua Temple, which is in the middle of a wildlife sanctuary, in the middle of a forest, and well, in the middle of nowhere, basically. Most of the time, this guy lived all alone doing his priestly things, but every time the election came around, he'd make the papers. So India runs the biggest elections on the planet. 900 million or so eligible voters, 600 million or so actual voters. And there's this law that says no voter should have to travel more than two kilometres to their polling station. So for decades at every election, a team of four or five election officials plus a cop would pack their bags and trek 70 kilometres into the middle of this wildlife sanctuary, which is full of Asiatic lions, by the way, and set up a polling booth for this one guy. He voted at his little one-man polling booth at every Indian election from 2002, and Indian and international media would always do a little piece about him every time because it was such a strange but lovely example of what happens when you take democracy really, really seriously. So that's Barak Dastashanda. Sadly, he died late last year at the age of 69, but as far as I can tell, he had managed to cast one last vote in April that year. Oh, what a sweet story. You know, there's something a little bit like that in New Zealand. Kinda. Uh-huh. It involves a plane ride. Nice. 
But since we're still in level three lockdown in Auckland, sorry, we're just going to have to imagine that bit. Ah, stink. But it's quite exciting. And luckily, we've got a tour guide for our remote polling station location, Graham Astle. So when I was returning officer for the Rongatai electorate, I supported the Chatham Islands. The Chathams, 800 kilometres east of the South Island population, about 600. They're even in a different time zone, 45 minutes ahead of the mainland. So even though they're all the way out there, as Graham said, they're part of the Rongatai electorate, which is in the Wellington region. So what we need to do there is appoint staff on the islands. We then aeroplane across their supplies. We also send somebody from that electorate to go over there and train the staff. And then at the end of the election, they aeroplane back to Wellington, all of their ballots and voting papers so that they can be part of the official count. And how many votes is all this for? Well, in 2017, I can tell you that from the Chathams polling station, there were 93 advance votes and 47 cast on election day. Would it be safe to guess that those end up being the most expensive votes per vote? <laughs> they could be, could be considered that. Actually, what does the whole election cost? Graham says the budget is $99 million, plus another $14 million for the referenda. Referendums. And then the whole COVID impact has added at least $28 million more, and that might still go up yet. So more than $140 million and counting. Doesn't come cheap. Doesn't come cheap. Price of good democracy. So what have we learned today, Eugene? Well, there was one thing we didn't learn. Huh? That question you didn't get to ask. Is there any chance you could tell us how many kilo... You know what? You take these, Eugene. I've got a lot of barking dog right now. <laughs> the dog wants to go to the polling booth with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and that's right. It's a good reminder. We learned you can't take your dog in to vote. We learned that your vote ends up as compost. We learned that despite the efforts of people like Mandy and her team, you can do that online at vote.nz. Uh, make sure we have the right. She never misses an opportunity. Anyway, we learned that despite all those reminders and the ads, there are still thousands of people who don't enrol. The vote ghosts. Boo. Is that meant to be scary? Anyway, we also learned or relearned that. The right to cast these votes, which don't come cheap, which are priceless, were once denied to many people. Like that shocking ban on voting by people of Chinese descent. And women. Women like Nellie Perriman, who fought for the right to vote back in 1893, alongside Kate Shepard. I suppose you never thought of stirring up obstinate legislators by setting fire to post boxes or storming Parliament building? Oh, no. Mrs. Shepherd, who directed the franchise movement, was a lady in the real early Victorian sense of the word. She would never have approved of violence, though we had some provocation. We put up with abusive criticism from our chief opponents, and some silly things were said about our ideal in Parliament. Guess they're trolls back in the 19th century too, huh? Hmm. Look, towards the end of our chat with Professor Jack Vols, we got into a discussion about, you know, is it all worth it? Does my one vote really matter amongst the millions of others? And he brought up a book by a guy called Anthony Downs. It's from 1957 and it's called An Economic Theory of Democracy. There is, as you were saying, the idea that your vote is so uh, infinitesimal in the wider pool of people who go out to vote on election day. So that is an issue. But what Downs argued was that uh, people would still, for the most part, still go out and vote anyway because they believe in democracy. 
And so there's the idea that if I didn't vote, you know, if nobody voted, then we wouldn't have a democracy. And so that is essentially the concept of civic duty. Uh, we go out to vote because if nobody did, we wouldn't have a democracy. So that's it for the Tick Tick podcast for Saturday the 29th of August. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham, thank you to Graham Astill, Mandy Bote, Jack Vowles, Claire Paisley, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson, John Hartfeld, and Carol Hirschfeld. And a special thank you to Nga Taonga Sound and Vision for the recording of Nelly Perriman from the RNZ Collection. You can find us on all the podcast platforms, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back next week. Matewa. Wa.